Welcome to another RCSLT podcast. My name is Jacques Strauss. Today is another IJLCD edition of the podcast, that is the International Journal of Language and Communication Disorders, and we are talking to one of the authors of a paper entitled Differentiating Phonological Delay from Phonological Disorder, Executive Function Performance in Preschoolers. The paper is by Rebecca Waring, Susan Rickard Liao, Barbara Dodd, and Patricia Eady. It was first published in January of 2022. As always, you can find a link to the paper and other resources in the show notes. This is a really interesting paper and provides all sorts of food for thought in terms of diagnosis, treatment, and further research. I started by asking Rebecca to introduce herself. Hi everybody, I'm Dr. Rebecca Waring. I'm a lecturer at the University of Melbourne where I teach speech sound disorders across the lifespan and also um, a couple of other subjects to our master's students um, along the lines of communication across the lifespan and um, sometimes into language disorders as well. And when I'm not at Melbourne Uni, I run a private practice called the Bayside Speech and Literacy Hub, um, which is my other passion besides teaching and research. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Now, I wonder if, if as a starter, um, you could talk to us about these two concepts. We've got something called phonological delay and phonological disorder. Oh, that's such a good question and a great place to start because they sound like really fancy pants words and they can be a bit overwhelming. So let me break it down so we can think about this in a really accessible sort of way. So the phonological is all about rules and how... um, sound combinations can occur in a language. So the the rules that govern things like um, in English, we can have um, that TS, that sound, TS, like in pots at the end of a word, but we don't have a TS at the start of a word. And there's all sorts of other rules. So that, that ng sound like in ring only appears at the end of a word in English and not at the start. So that's phonological, is thinking about how sound combinations go together. When children are learning to speak, they have to learn all these rules about how sounds go together. And that's all happening at a subconscious level for them. But what happens for some children, well, all children when they're learning to talk make errors as we know. But for some children, they have difficulty learning the right rules of how these sounds go together. And so they make really, for some children, really common errors. So you might think of some um, words where a car might become a tar, for example, where that back cut sound mm. becomes a front tut sound. So anywhere there's that uh, back cut sound, it gets changed to a tut. So that's a really common sort of error that we hear. Other common errors that we hear are long sounds, like at that S sound, that S or um, or um, a sh sound, for example, like in ship, uh, become stop sounds. So rather than being long, they become short. So a ship might become a tip, for example. And we hear this really commonly in kids. We also know when we expect children to have worked out these rules. But for some children, they come up with what we think of as really wacky rules. So they do more unusual types of errors that we wouldn't normally hear. And this is where this idea of phonological delay and phonological disorder comes in. So when we think of phonological delay, these are the kids who make typical errors that we'd expect to hear, but their errors go on for longer than we'd expect 
based on their age. So we might have a four-year-old who's still saying tar instead of car. And so we think of these children as being delayed. So they're following the same path that we'd expect them to follow, just going at a slower rate. And that contrasts with kids who have got a phonological disorder. So if we think about the word disorder, it gives you that idea of something atypical going on. So these children are making errors that we don't expect to see, that we don't see in typical development. So an example might be um, leaving all the first sounds off words. So a table becomes an able, a chair becomes an air, a door is an oar. So we don't hear that in typical development. And so these children stand out and they're really hard to understand. What's happened previously in the research is that all these children have tended to be hopped in together. So delay and disorder. And and that's been sort of what's driven my research. That's fascinating. I mean, just when you were, you know, giving those examples of those weird speech sounds that I've heard before, you know, like tar and stuff like that. But then when you gave the examples of the disorder, that's not something I've heard before. So it's instantly recognizable there's something very different going on there is that what you're saying yes you absolutely got it and what's really interesting when um i watch parents who have got a child with um, a delay versus those who've got a child with a phonological disorder the parents learn the patterns really quickly but um unfamiliar listeners do okay with children with a phonological delay because we're used to sort of listening to those errors and we can change them in our head but families who've got a child with a phonological disorder often it's nobody outside the family who can understand what they're saying because they it just doesn't sound even like immature speech it sounds really quite different. So uh, would it be fair to say that we're talking about something that is potentially quite serious if it's not attended to? Do you know what? Yes, is the short answer. Okay. And um, when we look at the research, we know for children with delay um, that they, they do tend to outgrow those errors. You know, even if they don't get intervention, those children would tend to outgrow those errors. Whereas for children with phonological disorder, uh, they tend to be really stuck in the patterns that they're right. making. And those children really do need intervention. And that was in in part what drove um, my interest in the area was because these children are often all put together and, you know, they're children with unintelligible speech. And with my clinical practice, it was like, oh, I just got this watching them you know you could see that the kids went down a different path the the delayed kids you know you didn't need to be quite so intensive in terms of you could leave them and you could see that they could pick things up on their own whereas the the Mm. disordered kids were really quite stuck what is it that your paper what question was your paper trying to answer this paper was actually um a part of a bigger series of studies so it was part of my phd uh, but it was really the pinnacle paper within my thesis. And what it was driven by was wanting to understand how children with phonological delay are different from phonological disorder, because I could, I could see it clinically. And there was evidence about that these children uh, have different profiles on when you look at speech aspects, we could see, yes, we could differentiate them out on those surface errors that they were making. But I've always been driven by why have these children got speech errors and how are they different? And it needed to be something more than just those surface level um, differences. I wanted to know far deeper about what was going on. So I was really driven by um, a need to find out the profile for these children beyond speech and really looking at what we call cognitive linguistic uh, profiling. So really looking at um, underlying processes that might be driving speech and how the children might be differing 
on things like their vocabulary skills, their um, working memory skills, and their um, executive function. We're doing an IGLCD podcast, and so the question is always going to be, what does the literature currently say about this? Again, it's a really great place to start. When we look at the literature, actually not a lot's been done that's looked at more these cognitive skills in children with speech disorders. So the idea's really been through sort of the history of research with children with speech disorders that it was more sort of surface level. So the attention's really been around what type of errors do the children make? But there was this great paper um, in 2009, which was probably what really sparked my um, need to research in the area. And it was a paper written by Crosby, Home and Dodd. And it was the first paper that really looked at these cognitive skills in children. And they looked at children, a big bunch of children with phonological delay and phonological disorder who were all in the one bunch and compared them with um, children with typically developing speech on a bunch of tasks that looked at what's called rule abstraction and also being able to shift. So they were looking at ability to work out rules, not in words, but in um, a non-linguistic or a non-language task. What they found was that children with phonological disorder really struggled to work out how objects could go together. So if you showed them a page, imagine a page that's got a picture of a small red teapot, a small red shoe, and a large red shoe. And what the children were asked to do was find two pictures on that page that went together one way. So they might've chosen the small shoe and the large shoe and because they were looking at the object. And then they were asked to find two pictures that went together a different way. And the idea here was that they'd be able to shift. So that's that idea of mentally shifting. So letting go of that first choice and being able to, um, to go with the colour so that they'd find the two red things that went together. So what they discovered with this paper is that children with phonological disorder couldn't make that shift. So the delayed kids were fine and they could find two that went together. Most of the kids could do that. But when it came to having to shift and come up with another rule, the children with phonological disorder bombed out completely on that sort of task. And, you know, I'm just going to clarify myself with that first paper by um, Crosby and colleagues. They had all their kids together so they could see that some children could do the task and some couldn't. Another study that Dodd did um, back in 2011, she then divided them into groups and it became very clear that the disordered had problems with rules and the delayed kids didn't. What was really interesting with that study, though, was um, that while they looked at what we think of as cognitive flexibility, um, it only looked at one aspect. So we didn't know whether there was something going on with phonological working memory. Maybe the children hadn't been able to shift because they couldn't hold that first rule that they had, think about it and come up with a new version. So maybe the problem was more to do with that, um, that working memory issue rather than a shift issue. And so that's where um, my research came in because we started looking at um, some more variables that could have been influencing that. Um, pattern that we were seeing. And so in Rebecca's paper, the authors were really looking to delve deeper into this problem and figure out what other cognitive factors may or may not play a role in phonological disorder. Could you just tell us a little bit about how, how you designed the study, how you did the study, what it involved and so forth? Mm, sure. So um, 
I actually completed this study in Singapore. So I lived in Singapore for quite a long time and it was a really unique place to do data collection. So I worked with children um, who were expats. So they were Aussie kids. Um, a lot of kids from the UK were in my study. I had some Kiwis as well, a couple of South Africans. So I ended up with a, a huge number of children to start with that were part of the, the, the largest study. And then what I did was found 13 matched pairs within my group. So all my children um, were between the ages of three and a half and um, five years, 11 months. And so I went through, I got all my children who I had found with phonological disorder, all those with phonological delay, and then did a matched pairs study. So I looked at all the children I had matched up delay disorder based on age. So they had to be within a couple of months of the same age as each other. The criteria was so strict to get it in. We looked, had a um, performance IQ type score as well. So they were closely matched there. Um, they had to have language, receptive language skills within the typical range. Um, they had to have intact oral motor skills for their age as well. There were no problems with hearing. And all my children also were from a very similar SES. So that was all um, baked in as well. And then when I did the match, it was on age. And it was on gender as well. Uh, so to clarify, we were just, what you were trying to do was to control for all other variables or as many as is humanly possible, age, intelligence, language development that had happened so far, socioeconomic background, the works. Yes. So these children looked as much like each other um, as they possibly could which made for a really strong, a strong design. So the advantage of a, a match pairs design is you don't need the same um, sample size. So when you first look at it, think 13 pairs, that's really low. But because of the design, um, mm. it takes out so many of that, you know, these extraneous variables. Um, after all this work, what were your key findings? So our first big question was really looking at, is there a difference between children with phonological delay and phonological disorder on their ability to abstract rules and to shift. And there was already evidence to suggest that that was the case from the work that had been done by Holmes and, and, and colleagues and Dodd as well. And what we found was, again, when we looked at our two groups at a different, so they were younger than what had been in Dodd's study, what we found was that we found that same result again where the phonological disordered kids had difficulty with being able to abstract rules and shift and they were significantly different in their ability to do that compared to the delayed kids. So the delayed children were absolutely fine when it came to doing the fist and when it came to doing the, the Woodcock-Johnson uh, concept formation task. So I'm just going to interrupt Rebecca here for a moment to say that FIST stands for Flexible Item Selection Task. So children are asked to perform one task, for instance, matching objects, and then with the same items asked to perform another, for instance, matching colours. And then we see if they're able to make that shift. They could do that task. My disordered kids um, really bombed out on it. So that was interesting because it confirmed what we'd seen previously but also in a younger and um, wider range, age range of kids than the previous studies had shown. Where this study was really compelling was that we'd also looked at working memory. And the reason we were looking at that, to reiterate again, was to see if it was maybe because the kids couldn't hold and manipulate information that that's why they couldn't do this abstraction. 
and shift. But what we found on the tasks that we specifically designed, working memory tasks was specifically designed for the study, was that there was no difference between Adelaide and disordered kids. So their working memory looked the same between those pairs. So there was this really clear difference um, in this cognitive skill of executive function that we found. What was interesting with these results too, we had a small sample size. We're not walking away from that. It was 13 pairs, but we got this large effect size. So even though it was small numbers, it was a really big effect. Okay, so the, the question is now we've, we've, we've narrowed in on where we think the issues potentially lie with phonological disorder. And, and, and we're saying, okay, it's not working memory. It's good that we've been able to rule that out. What does this mean for us? What it pointed out to us was a couple of things. One, that we were on the right track, that yes, there's some cognitive linguistic differences between these two groups. So we're definitely looking at you know, what we feel like, we're looking at two separate groups. They, it really points to not lumping them together anymore. But then it also um, helped us to try and hypothesize about, well, what is it about children with phonological disorder? What's going on for them? What we hypothesize is that these children with phonological disorder start by creating a faulty rule. So if we go back to that example of leaving the first sounds off words, you know, where we had an mm. able for table and an air for chair, that type of thing. And so what, we were, what we're arguing is the children come up with a faulty rule to start with. So with that initial consonant deletion example, they just, they don't have a rule for including first sounds. So they focus on the wrong part of the words they come up with a faulty rule and then that rule becomes automated because we know that they have trouble working out rules and then they have trouble shifting. So our children have come up with the wrong rule governing how words work. They get stuck with that rule and it becomes automated for them. And we know from the literature that children with phonological disorder don't spontaneously recover like children with phonological delay do. It sort of really fits with that idea that the children have trouble working out the rules and then trouble shifting. So that if we don't get in with our intervention and help them to see the rules and to shift, they stay stuck in that pattern. For SLTs, does it, is it going to help with how, how the, the therapist should tackle the issue? Yes, yes. And um, what we think these results suggest and, and, and the body of literature behind it as well is that we need to be doing something different for children with phonological disorder. And we're really about being able to tackle this um, area of weakness, this deficit head on and give the children exactly what it, they need in a really explicit way. And what they need to be given is to be told what the rules are and then to be given um, a help to be able to do that cognitive shift that's needed as well. Given that we know where the issue is, there's a set of interventions that, 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 that we, we, we're pretty confident will be more effective than anything else. This is where the research is at now. So we're sort of mm. building this picture of what the profile is for children with um, phonological disorder. There's been um, some, it's just really widened the landscape for some innovative uh, new treatment techniques as well. And we're starting to see those studies coming through now. 
evidence is really starting to build the case for how we can develop these interventions. So a lovely study was done by um, Clayson and colleagues in Perth, uh, where they developed an intervention to work on exactly that rule abstraction and cognitive shift. And um, it was a single case study, but it was really positive in that it showed that we could do this type of intervention and they didn't even work, they weren't working on speech specifically, but they were just teaching about rule abstraction and shift and they saw change in this little girl's speech. So we're starting to get some evidence that yes, these types of approaches could well work. So, but what I'm hearing from you is going, now we know the area, actually the real potential is now, now we can start researching more better, more efficacious interventions. That's exactly our goal, yes. And to really, I think the big shift that we're you know, on the edge of is rather than doing looking for one best treatment that works with everybody, mm. is really looking to tailor what we're doing to the individual. So if we can do that great differential diagnosis and go, yes, this little person is definite, definitely, definitely has a phonological disorder and then knowing what the best treatment is for phonological disorder rather than you know, a, a blanket approach for everybody. So what are other things you think SLT should be researching in this area? Look, executive function is, um, I think it's having its moment now, which is really exciting. Yeah. So I think it's a great time for doing this type of research. There's been a lot of research that's looked at the executive function with children with language disorder. And I think we just, we just need to build up the body of research around um, children with speech sound disorders as well, get these profiles happening. Think um, beyond just speech processing and think wider into these more cognitive um, skills that could potentially underline speech. We know a bit more now about working memory. We've certainly got some information around rule abstraction and cognitive shift. I think um, it would be really nice to start looking at how the sort of the third pillar of executive function is inhibition control and I'd love to love to extend the research into that area too. Is there like a take-home message for SLTs? You know, I think there is. I think the take-home message is um, we need to be thinking about our assessment protocols and be looking beyond just doing um, speech testing, but to be thinking about what they're um, underpinning cognitive skills um, might look like. So we need to be making sure we do things like looking at phonological awareness because we know children with phonological disorder often go on to have literacy difficulties. We need, I think, to be coming up with some tests that are looking at this rural abstraction because it can be done quickly and it can really help both to um, support our diagnosis and also to know where the kids are at in terms of their rural abstraction and cognitive shift. We need to be thinking about, okay, how can we take these ideas and really make it meaningful in the therapy that we do? So we're saying these cognitive tests can be quite useful uh, diagnostic tools in practice. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the other nice, really nice thing about um, tests like the flexible item selection task um, is that when parents see the children do it as well, it you can talk about real abstraction all you like, but there's nothing like seeing it in action. And for the parents to go, oh my goodness, what looks like a really simple task and then see that they, when their kids, 
with phonological disorder really can't do it. You can see them, they can come up with one rule, but then they really can't shift. They're really stuck. I have kids say to me things like, no, that's the only way they go together. And that would stun parents. So, oh, interesting. So that gives them a real insight into what's actually going on here. And then they can see that it's much easier to explain the link between, you know, looking at pictures and putting pairs together and how that might relate to speech. A very big thank you to Rebecca for her time. If you have any feedback, things you like, things you don't like, topics you'd like us to cover, guests you'd like us to interview, please do get in touch by sending an email to cpd at rcslt.org. Until next time, keep working.